Chapter 8, Gospel of John. I've been in this chapter for a few weeks. Lord willing, underlined, we'll finish it today. <laughs> no promises. We saw this chapter open with the religious leaders testing Jesus as they brought this woman, not the man, but just the woman, caught in the act of adultery, thrust her down in front of him. All the guys standing there with rocks in their hands. Jesus drawing on the ground, the guys dropping their rocks. Remember, this wasn't in dirt as he wrote. It, was in, it says in this chapter that he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, which was actually there's the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and then there's the, the court where the Jews would be after the sorg, the wall. And then in the temple proper, the outer court of the temple proper was called the court of the women. And in that court was the treasury. And so Jesus is in this smaller area, which was still excuse me, a significantly large area covered with columns on both sides and buildings and so on. Before you actually went to the temple proper and the, the, the gate to that would be right in front of these guys. And so Jesus goes in the day after uh, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Remember, they all had their little booths that they went and camped out in for a week. So the day after the feast is when this is taking place. This whole chapter takes place in one spot. Keep that in mind, because we saw that there he dealt with the woman who had been caught in adultery, and, and, and really it was a leading up to his statement that I am the light of the world. He who believes in me won't walk in darkness, will have the light of life. And, and a very profound, very famous statement, and rightfully so, because he is light. He does not bring light, he is light. You go out to the end of time, out to where the new Jerusalem comes down at the end of the book of Revelation, and, and John says, and I saw no light in it, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its light. And there is no light in heaven. There's no sun in heaven. It's the light of Christ. It's the light of Jesus that actually illuminates that place. And he is light. And he, the Bible tells us in this gospel that he came as a light into a dark world and that it was dark because men loved darkness rather than light. Because why? Because their deeds were evil, it says. And we're going to talk about evil this morning. And so we went on from that to, to see that there's a, there was this whole conflict that took place, a very heated conflict between he and the religious leaders and the people. The people were sharply divided over Jesus, and, and that had been the case, that, had, that growing division had been the case since he was at the Sea of Galilee, and he said, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh if you want any part with me. And remember, everybody left, except for his guys. And so uh, there's this conflict, and, and the, it was like the division was widening from that point forward. We're here, we're about six months out from the cross. We're at the last end of Jesus's ministry. And a great deal of the Gospel of John is focused on the last week of his ministry, and we'll get to that soon. So, and then Jesus talks about truth. We looked at truth a couple of weeks ago when he says that, that he is, again, not a doctrine of truth, but that he is truth, that he is the embodiment of truth. And that the truth will set us free. We looked at freedom again last week. We looked at uh, what it was to be freed from the penalty of sin, from the penalty of sin to justification, to being declared righteous. So we go from this place of being forgiven for all of our sins, that one sacrifice once for all, that's why we do this. 
and, and, and then to be freed, but to be not just freed from sin in, in the penalty of it, but to be justified, to be declared righteous in God's eyes, to be given a right position, a right standing with God. Huge, huge, if you understand that. That is covered beautifully in the book of Romans, and perhaps we'll study there at some point, but uh, these are major doctrines of the Christian faith. They're not small things that are, these are not small threads through the Bible. These are major threads in the New Testament. And then freed from the power of sin, remember we looked at that, uh, from the power of sin, the, the hold that sin had on us, that, that as we were children of darkness at one time, uh, that we were literally held captive to sin. That I could try to not sin, and I could try all day long, but if the basis of God's judgment is, is thoughts, words, and deeds, how far do I get into my day before I miss the mark, before I sin? But we're not just freed from the power of sin, but we are also sanctified. We're not only declared righteous, but sanctified. Being sanctified positionally is being declared holy. Being declared sinless in that sense. And yes, there's this practical sanctification that we're all involved in. And that as we grow, as we grab hold of more of that for which he grabbed hold of us for, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I haven't attained it yet. But I press on that I could grab a hold of, that I could lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me for. And that's the practical aspect of sanctification. And then we looked at freed from the presence of sin, and that's future. Not just freed from the presence of sin, but freed to glory. That we will be glorified together with him. And that, that there will be no more crying. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. The curse will be gone. What a glorious day that will be. What a glorious time that will be when, when we're freed from this cursed earth, when we're freed from the curse of this old flesh that we pack around with us that, that just rares up at times. Uh, Archie this morning, poor guy, uh, he yelled for Nicholas. I, he didn't know I was right around the corner. And, and he turned and he screamed in the hallway, hey, Nicholas! And I, and I flashed. I, I mean, I was like, my flesh just went, what are you doing? You scared me. You guys startled me. You get that startle thing. And he goes, oh, wow, I didn't see you standing there. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but, but I just thought, you know, I can't wait to be freed from this body of death. Is like the first thing I do when I get scared is I like get my back up. And I'm like, all right, who's that? You know? and, and it was just, I, I had to laugh. I thought, well, I'm going to teach on that here in a few minutes. <laughs> anyway. So we looked at all of that, and now we come to, if you notice in your bulletin, uh, the title of this morning's message, Paternity Test. <laughs> I know that's an odd title for a Bible study, but it's true. We're going to be looking at the interaction that Jesus has with the religious leaders, and, and they're making claim to who their father is, and Jesus is making claim to who his father is. And Jesus lays some things out for these guys that clearly illustrate who their father is. It reminded me of when I was a teenager, I, and, and I was, uh, between my 11th and 12th grade, I, I ended up moving 1,200 miles, 1,100 miles from home, and, and I ended up uh, renting in a, 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 a little house and getting three part-time jobs and put myself through high school, through the, my senior year and graduated and all that. But uh, for a short time, I lived at my sister's house, and she was in her late 20s, and she was one of those young moms that every afternoon, the soaps would come on. 
And um, I'd get home from school and I'd go sit down on the couch and pretty soon I'm watching these soap operas. And, and it was like, I was, I was thunderstruck. I was really, I, like I said, I wasn't a believer, but it still was kind of discuss, disgusting. It was like, all these things are is drama. And it's like endless drama. And, and, and it got so bad that I literally, if my sister started talking about it, and I'd go do something else, and she'd start talking about one of the soap operas, and I would ask this question, and I asked this of people years for years afterwards. If somebody made a reference to daytime television, I'd say, oh, yeah, well, what about the baby? And they would immediately, if they thought it was serious, they'd go, oh, well, you know, they're trying to figure it out, and they don't know if it's Bob's or Bill's, and you know, they'd just go through this whole thing. And, and I'd be going, oh, yeah, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh, great, you know. And it didn't matter what soap opera it was. It, there was always a baby. <laughs> and, and usually they were trying to do a paternity test to try to figure out who the dad was and all that other garbage. But the point is, is that it was just a funny thing for me because all I had to do, I had no knowledge of the soap opera, but I would always say, what about the baby? <laughs> I'd get the whole deal. <laughs> How's that for a lead into John 8? <laughs> Verse 37 of John chapter 8. Jesus is responding to the guys. In verse 33, they had said, we're Abraham's descendants. Like, hey, look at us. We are the descendants of Abraham. And he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. We talked about that, and we'll look at it again this morning. The difference between being Abraham's descendants by the flesh and being Abraham's children in the spiritual sense, because you and I are Abraham's children. Very clear in Galatians. The book of Galatians, Paul lays it out. He says, you know what? We are the spiritual seed of Abraham because the covenant that God made, the promise that God made with Abraham back in Genesis, I think it's 16. Don't quote me on that part. But but back then when he made this covenant with Abraham, he said, through you, the families of the earth, that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And, And he was talking about it would jump right over the law of Moses and right to the grace of God being poured out on any who would come. We are the spiritual seed of Abraham. And these guys are saying, well, Abraham's ours. We're his children. And, and, you know, sort of strutting their stuff. And he's saying, you might be his children according to the flesh. You might be his descendants. But you're not his kids. So in verse 37, he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. We, we ended with this verse last week. Perhaps the most profound thing he had said to these guys up to this point was, you don't have any place for my word. You do not believe me. And my word has no significance. It has no importance. It has no place in you. And you ever talk to people that say, oh, the Bible's a bunch of myths. Oh, yeah, that. And there are people, I mean, Folks, I know that I'm sitting in a room full of intelligent human beings, and there are people that put forth that we are anything but because we believe this word, this Bible. And I'm telling you, it's a spiritually discerned thing. You have to go to it with faith. You cannot approach the word of God without the working of the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth that's in it. And these guys didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't want to do business with Jesus. They wanted their own deal. They had already rejected him in their hearts, and he was basically exposing their folly. Verse 38, I speak 
what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've seen with your father. Interesting. He uses two verbs there. I speak and you do. You ever think about that? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is this. And he says love, joy, peace, and so on. List nine items there. And then he talks about the deeds of the flesh. And Jesus says, I speak and you do. I speak what I hear from my Father. You do what you hear from your Father. And I wanna, we're going we're gonna to take that apart a little bit as we go. But what I want to submit to you is where do these things originate? Because it's really, really important that we understand that Jesus in his humanity, when he, when he continually, um, when he continually was, was would he be talking to the people, to either his guys or to the religious leaders? In this case, in this conflict he's having with them, he repeatedly points to the Father. So I'm not doing this on my own. I only do that which the Father tells me to do. I only say that which he gives me to say. I only speak that which he gives me to speak. What he is doing is illustrating in his humanity what a life given to God is about. We'll look at this because he says some very, very interesting things about hearing from God as we work through this passage. But I want you to look at that. So where does this originate? And before we get all lofty in our opinions about, wow, yeah, those creepy Pharisees, their father was Satan, and boy, oh boy, were they ever out there. And they were, and he was, and all of that. But I want to spend a little bit of time in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 together. It says that in Ephesians 2, 1, he says, in you, he made alive, implying you weren't, and you weren't, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked. And then he gives three different characteristics here. He says, you walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And, and you walk according to the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And he's not talking about the, the bad guys here. He's not talking about the religious leaders. He's talking about you and I. That we once walked as children of darkness. We once walked in a manner that would qualify us in the same category as these guys that Jesus is dealing with. And, and we walked according to the evil that is in men's hearts. And so when we look at this and when we approach this, we've got to remember, you know, I, I, I mentioned probably often that I love the passage in Isaiah where he says, look to the rock from which you were hewn, but look to the pit from which you were dug. We were without hope. We were desperately sinful. We were desperately caught. We were condemned. We were children of wrath, he says here. Um, in verse 3, he says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So this is equal opportunity condemnation, but wait, there's more, because we're not, we don't stay condemned. These guys would because they had hardened their hearts. They had hardened themselves against the working and the power and, and the words of Jesus. And he's exposing that. 
But we've got to remember that the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that all of us, that none of us makes the cut on our own. These guys, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day, had one huge area that we in Western culture don't get a lot, and that's they put it all on righteousness, and which is you have to possess righteousness to come into God's presence to be able to go to heaven. The biggest thing that they had is they thought they could make their own. They thought that by virtue of the fact that they were Abraham's children, that they were guaranteed because they were Jews, because of their bloodline, that they were going to go to heaven. They were going to be actually the ones, the chosen ones of God. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. It's not on that basis. It's on the basis of faith. I come from my father. He, and when he's saying that over and over again, he's talking about the origin when I say, what's the origin of these things? These guys' opinions about God were originating within themselves. Which was because they were children of darkness. They loved darkness rather than light. So who was their father, you see? And Jesus is saying, these things that I'm saying, they don't originate within me. They originate within the father. And I only do that which he shows me to do. I only say that which he gives me to say. And so you've got to realize that for us, folks, as we walk with the Lord on this side of redemption, what are the things that motivate my life? Is it things that originate within me, my flesh? I can look good, but I still am I compelled to live after the flesh? Or do I say, Father, what do you have to say about this? Lord, what is your will in this situation? Lord, speak to me about what you want me to do in this case. Those are good questions and they're probing questions because I guarantee you as we apply this truth to our lives, something will come about in our lives and we call that growth. It's how we grow. We, we, we grow by being conformed to the image of his son. We grow by appropriating the word of God and the words of God in our life. We'll talk about the difference between those in a bit. So uh, looking at this, I mean, by nature, this, that Adamic nature, that by nature, we were children of wrath. And by nature, these guys were too. The difference between them and you is you came to a place of saying, and I, I pray that it's so for each of us here, uh, coming to a place of saying, Lord, not my will, but your will. Not my idea of how my life ought to run, but yours. Lord, I surrender to your working in my life, in my heart. And I pray, Father, that you would reveal to me the way that I could conduct my life, that you would work in me by your spirit, through your word, and that I could live a life that's in concert with what the Father's will, with what the Lord's will is for me. And, and, and as we do that, then we are simply, we call it walking with the Lord. That's how it works. Verse 39, they answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. Now they're not saying descendants. They're making claim to being his, their, his children. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What are the works of Abraham? Faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That again, as we look at this Abrahamic covenant, the, the thing that, that, jumps right over the law of Moses, which these guys were totally hung up on. They had their codified, 
you know, they had their books of interpretations of the law and their books of interpretations of interpretations of the law and so on. I mean, they had volumes of this stuff. Complex list of obedience that they figured were what produced righteousness in their life, see. And now they're saying, well, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, you do the works of Abraham. You would believe. Have you ever talked to people interesting, that, that look at Christianity as, as it's part of our heritage. I've talked to a lot of people that over the years, well, well, I'm a Methodist. You know, as though that's what does it? Well, I, I was raised a Presbyterian, and I'm not picking on Methodists or Presbyterians. I'm just saying that when people put, they, they sort of account their relationship with God to some heritage the way they were raised and all of that, as though that's what gets them in, as though that's what qualifies them. It's essentially putting, and how often people do this, they put the onus of whether or not they're right, in right standing with God by who they are, again, what originates in them, as opposed to what originates in him. See, there's a huge difference. And very often people will lay a claim to uh, sort of this heritage. It's the only way I can really think about it is that, you know, I was raised Catholic. Well, bravo, but do you know Jesus? You know what I'm saying? It's, that doesn't count in God's economy. I was watching a thing, um, uh, a clip from, uh, there's a program, and I don't recommend it, called The View on television. <laughs> Yeah, you guys have watched it too, I can tell. <laughs> and in this clip, they were talking about Vice President Pence. And they were saying, he says God talks to him. And the other went, yeah, that's a form of mental illness. And, and one of them said, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I just, in my heart, I just went, no, you're not. Um, but <laughs> And I'm not supposed to do that because I don't know maybe that person is or not. But the fruit in that conversation was that they were anything but. They were sort of throwing that out there as though, well, by saying I'm a Christian, I can validate the fact that this guy's cuckoo. And he's not. He loves the Lord. And yet the world is out there and they throw this stuff around and it's sickening because you have all of these purported experts on Christianity who are not Christians at all. And that's what these guys were doing with Jesus. They were they were the purported experts. They were the ones that everybody went to and, you know, they loved the, the chief seats. They loved the long robes. They loved the recognition. Oh, rabbi, hi, you know, kind of thing. And, 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 and Jesus is going, no, he's just calling them on their stuff. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. Abraham never would have done what they were doing. They were hatching a scheme to kill the Messiah. They wanted him dead because he threatened their puny little show. It's, it, 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 I mean, I've read this a bunch of times, but it never ceases to amaze me the depths that these guys go to. But you know, I'm not surprised because if you're if you live for very long, you see the depths to which people go to and the depravity of the human heart. It's all around us, folks. We live in an evil world. 
We live in a sinful world. We live in a fallen planet that people hatch schemes all the time. People reject him every day. Why? And I've been thinking about this, and I think it's because he forces us to make a choice. You know how we've talked about the division that arose with the people here in this chapter? People don't want to make a choice. I want to sit on the fence. I really don't want to say, you know, if I, if I put my faith in God, then, you know, I'm going to lose all my stuff. I'm, you know, I'm not going to have any fun kind of a thing. And there's this whole fallen attitude about, you know, no, 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 I just, uh, I just, uh, I don't want to really choose him, but I don't want to not choose him because that's not cool. You know, you, you kind of go through this whole deal and it's just the fallen mind's ability to try to reason these things out and Jesus won't let us get away with that, will he? He says, you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a choice. You're either for me, uh, you're not neutral, or you're against me, period, end of story. There is no neutral ground and he forces it. That's why this conflict is arising because he's forcing people to make a choice. And he forces us to make a choice, doesn't he? Every day. Not just the big choices. I mean, that, that time when, when I really recognized and by faith said yes to Jesus. That's a, that's a big moment, believe me. But every day, all through the day, am I doing what originates in me or am I doing what originates in him? Because that's life and peace. What origin originates in me is strife and really death. And he, he, he won't let us be neutral. He will not let us be neutral. He won't let these guys be neutral. And they keep hammering on him and he keeps giving it right back to them. Verse 41, you do the deeds of your father. You, again, you do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Here's the paternity test. He says, you do the deeds of your father. In other words, your life shows who you belong to. You're unredeemed, unregenerate. You're children of hell. You're children of the devil himself. As we read in Ephesians, so were we prior to releasing our lives to Christ. And there's a real devil and a real hell. 22 names for him in the New Testament. Not going to go through them. Thought about it, but yeah, we're going to run short on time as is. When they say you were born of fornication, we've talked about it before. This was the reproach that followed Jesus and his mother Mary around all their lives. Remember, she was pregnant out of wedlock. She was betrothed to Joseph, but, and we know that Joseph didn't do it. We know that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and that she was with child by the Holy Spirit. We understand that. It breaks the Adamic curse, the whole deal. I mean, that's why the virgin birth is so important. It's a central doctrine to the Christian church, to our understanding. And yet, in human terms, all these people around them saw Mary get bigger and bigger and knew they were still betrothed. And it says that he put her away, but word got out. You know how word does get out. I mean, it always gets out. Word always gets out. You can't hide anything around here. But the point is, is they were talking about that. They're trying to be condemning to him. Well, we're not, we weren't born of fornication <clears throat> like you, Jesus, rabbi from Galilee. 
son of Mary, uh, floozy kind of a thing. I mean, and that, that was how they looked at her. Uh, we talked about, it. You know, and, and the Jews recorded down through their deal that, she, that Jesus was the son, the illegitimate son of Mary. But in verse 40, he says, I hear from my father, not from myself. He's setting a pattern here in his humanity. Again, in his humanity, he was setting a pattern for how he was conducting his life because he only did that which he heard from his father. He says, you do the works of your father. I hear from mine and my life shows that. That's the rhema of God. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about rhema for a minute because it is used in this passage a little further. Speed it up here or we won't get out of here till noon. I don't care, you guys wanna stay till noon? No. There are two words for word in the New Testament. One is logos. In the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. And the logos, the word of God became flesh. And we look at that, this Bible, this written word is the Logos. But there's also the spoken word of God. And it's not talked about a lot in Christian circles these days because there's so much abuse. Bag the abuse, distance from the abuse, understand the abuse is out there, so what? And I'm not saying so what because I don't care, I'm saying for the purpose of this teaching, so what? Forget about the abuse, understanding the use. Jesus is saying, I only do that which I hear from my Father, uh, his words to me. And, and, he, and he goes on to say in this chapter that the people that know me hear God's words. So does God speak, is really what's being brought out here. Yes, he does. Yes, Vice President Pence hears God speak. Does the world get that? No. Is there abuse in that? Yes, because it opens the door for people to say, well, God told me. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, be careful with it because the abuse exists and extra biblical revelation is kind of getting common out there in these goofy organizations. I'm not going to call them churches. I've decided I'm not going to call them churches. They call themselves, anyway. But it's not, that's not God's word. That's not the, the rhema of God. It's when God communicates to me by his spirit and it lines up with this. And it's very, very important because the way I conduct my life is it in concert with God's words to me. Why is it important that I hide his word in my heart so it can come out by the Holy Spirit? I understand that about God and therefore I understand what I believe he's showing me. When I go to the Bible and I read it and I see these things that jump off the page, it's because the rhema of God is confirming that scripture to my heart. It's confirming it. I don't have understanding without God showing me and giving me illumination. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the rhema of God. The abuse is when somebody purports to be giving the words of God that don't line up with the word of God. Make sense? Stay in that arena, you're good. By the way, really would caution against going to other people and saying, well, you know, God told me to tell you. <laughs> you guys know better than that. If you say that to me, I'm likely to say, well, when he tells me, I'll let you know. 
1 Corinthians 6, um, when he says, you do the deeds of your father, I don't have it up on the screen, but I added it after I finished that up. In verse 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of God. And things like that. Now, he's not talking about people that have sinned. He's talking about people that that's their life. That's their lifestyle. That's, they're ordering their life after them, not after him. <laughs> okay? But it's interesting here. He says, such were, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. We've been talking about that. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord that we are no longer children of darkness, but we are children of light. Is therefore walk in a manner worthy of that which you have been called. That's the point. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and I came from God, nor have I come from myself, but he sent me. Again, it's what we're talking about, the origin of these things. If God were your father, you'd love me. Yeah, that's the same as today. You know, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, when I'm sharing Christ, when I'm talking about the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts, it's because God's my father. And I do love him. And it's a pretty good barometer for where people are at. And, and we're not to go out and clobber people because they close themselves to the gospel. Um, there's some great things in that. But catch the significance. He's, he's saying, I'm not doing this by myself. I'm doing this because I'm doing what the Father is showing me to do. And if he was your Father, you would be right there with me, is what he's saying. Verse 43, why do you not understand my speech? Have you ever talked to people that it's like you, you talk to them about God and their eyes just glaze over and they're like, I can't wait for you to shut up. And I just don't want to hear it. I, I don't talk to me about this God stuff, this religion thing. I don't want to hear it. I just don't. Jesus says here, because you're not able to listen to my word. Why? because they had not come to faith. They had not come to believe. Over and over, 92 times in this gospel, that word is used on purpose because you always act on what you believe. And if you don't believe this, you're not going to be interested. You're going to reject it. That's what these guys were doing. Don't be surprised. Usually if I'm sharing the Lord with someone and I see their eyes glaze over and they're kind of like, uh, you know, and, and, and the Holy Spirit's faithful. I mean, he shows you when that's taking place. Usually I just shut it down because I'm not getting anywhere. And, and, and there are times where he's charged me to go for it. I, I remember sharing with a, a Mormon lady on my front porch one time that actually, and I, I would pray, Lord, you want me to share with these people? You show me just... Father, give me the words. Give me your words, like I'm, like I'm saying. And I would shine it on, unless he charged me to go. This one time he charged me to go, and he gave me chapter and verse, and I, I preached the gospel to this Mormon girl on my front porch. There's an older one and a younger one. And when I finished, I finished with, 
And if you want, you can get down on your knees with me. I'll get down on my knees with you right here, right now. You can repent of your sin and, and receive Christ, receive Jesus as Lord. I mean, it was hammer down. This woman looked at me and burst out crying. She was so conflicted because I knew God was speaking to her. I knew it. The older woman literally drug her off my porch because she wanted to continue. It was, it was a powerful moment. But again, listening, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit on these things. They're not, they're not able to understand because they don't want to listen to his word. They don't want to know. Fingers in their ears screaming, la, 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 la. They, they just don't want to know. It's unbelief. But it doesn't let anybody off the hook. It's willful unbelief. Yeah, it's driven by ignorance, but it's willful ignorance. You can know. You can know. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Now, he's standing in the court of the women in the temple with a huge crowd around him. Maybe the woman who had been caught in adultery is still standing there and she's like, wow, I didn't know I was signing up for this today. But I mean, he's talking to these religious leaders and he's shouting these things back and forth. I can just picture this scene and he's saying, you are of your father, the devil. And, and it's like, and the people look at the guys, you know, it's like, what are they going to say now? And, oh, you know, what's going on? Because this is a heated deal. And nobody went up to the Pharisees, the revered Pharisees, the revered leaders, though, the rabbis. Nobody talked to them like that. Except Jesus. I love it. He says, you're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. And the word resources is in italics. That means it was added for translation purposes. I don't think it needs to be there. He says, you speak from your own. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own. And that's what you're doing. You're speaking from your own. You're speaking from your own nature, your own fallen, sinful, Adamic nature. For he's a liar and the father of it. He's talking about the nature of Satan himself and his nature is lies. He comes to lie, steal, and destroy. There is nothing good there. And he's saying he's your father to these guys. The word desires, the Greek word is epithumia, and it means a passionate longing. Lust, it's where we get the word lust, the same word. Uh, and it's a, it's a strong word. Uh, and he's saying, you like it. You want to do that. You are drawn to that. And sometimes that's what the draw of sin is and, and, and temptation in our lives. Is there's this, this strong drawing. I wanted to unload on Archie this morning. No, I didn't. No, but I'm serious. It, but there's this strong longing, you know, that, that just that temptation to sin. Is, that's epithumia. You feel that well up inside of you? Shut it down. Take those thoughts captive before the throne of Christ because you're about to sin. Stop. We call that temptation. Verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Okay, he, now he's challenging these guys back. Okay, go ahead. Tell me about how I've sinned. Go ahead. Tell me how I've sinned. And if I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Let me give you a test. And it's met with silence. 
Verse 47, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. He who is of God hears God's rhema. That's the Greek word. It's not logos. Here's God's words. Are you of God? Do you hear God's words? If not, check your heart. If you do, good. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. Always in, always, it's, it's always, it's never contradicting his, his logos, his written word. It, he will not contradict himself. He's not the author of confusion. But he does want to guide our lives. He does want to come to us with the frame of God. He does want to illuminate his written word, but he does so through his spoken word, through his speaking to us. It's this beautiful unison that we see between the rhema and the logos. And it's not talked about a lot because people get so freaked out about it, but it is true. And it's not my opinion. Jesus says, he who is of God hears God's rhema. Therefore, you don't hear because you're not of God. You do not have the rhema. You do not have any confirmation in you that these things are true. You know that, wow, that's true. That, oh, good message, pastor. You know, that kind of thing. That's the rhema in you. And it has very little to do with me. But it's true. These are powerful, powerful things. This is a powerful principle. Just be careful with it, though. Remember we talked about the greatest freedom provides for the greatest abuse. Don't abuse this. Had a guy tell me this week, um, and I'll, I'll step on it here because we aren't going to finish if I don't step on it. Uh, and this is just an example. I had a guy, I was on the phone with the guy, and this guy wasn't evil or anything like that, but I was talking to this guy, maybe he is, I don't know. But, and he said, you know, John, there's 2.7 billion Christians on earth. And I didn't get a rhema on that one. <laughs> and I went, well, that's an interesting number. So I went, and I Googled, I'm sorry, I Google a lot. So I went and I Googled the Earth's population. 7.6 billion, okay? So then I did some math. 2.7 billion out of 7.6 billion means just under three out of seven people are Christians, according to this guy's calculations, or 35.52%. You can do a lot of math on Google. 35.52% of the Earth's population. And not a chance. Number one, the church, the true church, is always a remnant. It's a minority. It's a small number. And, and while it's not up to us to determine who is and who isn't, and that's a good thing because we can't see the heart, I can tell you that when I'm out there, milling around in society at three out of seven people I don't generally have fellowship with. I want to have fellowship. But when I look at the church and I see that it's getting down to very small fractions, way under 10%, as far as people being at church because they want to nourish their spirit, they want to have spiritual nourishment, it ain't 35% of the population. And, and my point is this, is not to take this guy on, and I didn't take him on, I was gracious with him, believe what you want on that. But my point is, is, he was speaking something that I went, no, that's not true. Because it wasn't something that was a revelation from God. He was saying that as though that adds credibility to the church. And in my opinion, 
you know, after looking at when Jesus emptied the ranks and went from 15,000 to 11, it's not about that. So I discounted it and I dismissed it. And we do that, don't we? We can do that when people make claims. This guy was telling me something about God as though that was a fact. And it's not a fact, it was a guess. And it's not a good guess. So my point is we major in the majors. We major in what does God's revealed word to us say? What does he reveal to us? Does it, is it consistent with that? And when I look in the word, it doesn't say 35%. It doesn't say not 35%. It just doesn't say. But I do know that the people of God are always a remnant. They're always a small percentage. And so with that in mind, I can dismiss that. It's just the mental process I went through. I'm just sharing that with you because we're talking about people that purport to speak for God. Are you going to go with what somebody tells you about God? Or are you going to go with what God tells you about himself? Where does it originate? Does it originate in you? That figure originated in that guy, I'll guarantee it wasn't like he was being evil, but it originated in him. It didn't originate in God. God didn't tell him 35%. So the point is, is be careful of how you appropriate these things. Verse 48, then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, they refuse to deal. This is willful blindness. This is spiritual blindness at its best or worst. They don't want to deal. And so they say, well, you're a Samaritan. They're giving him racial slurs now. And you have a demon. You're demon possessed because they don't want to hear it. They can't hear it. They literally can't get there from here because they have hardened their hearts and they will not appropriate these things by faith. They will not believe, perhaps, just perhaps, either we're all completely nuts or there's some light. There, there's maybe some life in this guy's words. But they don't want to hear it. And Jesus says, he answers them, and he's so gracious, he says, I don't have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The heart of the gospel. Again, he directs it back. These guys are trying to get him onto all these different rabbit trails to get him to talking about demonology, to get him talking about the Samaritans. He doesn't even deal with the Samaritan comment. And, and he says, no, let me, let me take you back to what's important here. I've told you in this conversation, if you don't believe that I am, you'll die in your sin, period. And now he, he says it the same thing, but in a different way. He says, if, if anyone keeps my word, he won't see death. And in other words, he's already said, if you don't keep my word, you will see death. You will die in your sin. And they're still not, they're not, still not listening. And he's given them this, this whole thing and, and their ears are shut. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham's dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. They're basically saying, who do you think you are, Jesus? I'm going to wrap up here in a minute, but I, I, there's one thing I want to give you. I want to give you a, a biblical definition of sin and evil, and then we'll finish the text. We're going to run a few minutes late. Uh, I beg your indulgence on that. I do want to finish the chapter. Um, sin. And, and, and all sin is rooted in evil. Understand this. I mean, there's some fuzzy lines on this, but I want to just give you an idea of where these guys are operating from. 
the Greek word is hamartia, and it literally means missing the mark. It's sin is either violating a revealed divine truth or not applying a revealed divine truth. They were violating, they were not applying, they refused to enter in, they refused, and that was sin for them. Evil, there's three words for evil. The, word, the first is kakos, and it's opposed to goodness of character, and their character wasn't. The second is poneros, and it's opposed to a divine viewpoint. They don't want to know what God thought. They don't want to know what God said. They don't want to know Jesus. They don't want to, by faith, appropriate the things that he's saying as having any weight at all. So they're opposed to a divine viewpoint. The third is phallos, and it's opposed to divine good. And he says, you want to kill me? That was Phalos. That's evil. And they'd hatch this plan. So evil, if sin is either violating a revealed divine truth um, or not applying a revealed divine truth, then evil is a system of thinking that opposes divine truth, both in belief and behavior. These guys were operating from evil. That's why he said, you don't pass the paternity test. You're of your father, the devil. You're evil. You're operating from that place. You're operating from that fallen Adamic nature, and you like it there. See, there's a difference between sin uh, and, and, and a sinful person. We talked about it last week. I mean, you're ashamed. You're sorrowful. You're, you confess it. You, you don't like that you've sinned, and you resolve to forsake it. All of that. That's all healthy stuff in the life of a believer. There was none of that with these guys. They were given over. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who's dead? They're talking to him. And the prophets are, who are dead? Why do you make yourself out? Who do you make yourself out to be? And they understood the claim that he was making. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. In other words, talk is cheap, gentlemen. You claim that he's your God, but you don't act like he's your God. Verse 55, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. I mean, again, picture this happening. This is, I mean, we read this, but this is an exchange between this guys, these guys. And I would imagine by this point, it was like hammered down. I mean, he is just laying it out there. You know what? I could do that, but I'd be a liar like you. <laughs> I mean... Tell me that Jesus is like this kind of Casper Milk Toasty kind of, this is a man's man. He is laying it down for these people. The whole thing that they're pressing him for is for him to confess that he doesn't know the Father. He's, they're pressing him for this. They're trying to get him, they're, again, they're trying to outmaneuver him and every time they open their mouth, he trumps what they have to say because he speaks life, he speaks truth. And verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. This turned him upside down. I mean, they would have set their jaws when he said this. He's making a reference. I mean, look back at the, the references to Abraham. Genesis 22, we talked about it this morning where he's got his son up there on the altar on Mount Moriah, just a few feet away from where Jesus is saying these things because the temple was built at the top of Mount Moriah. I mean, he's just... I mean, it's just a, literally a few feet away. And, and he's saying, yeah, Abraham, he saw my day and he was glad. 
And you look back, I mean, when Jesus came with the two other angels before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm not going to go into that. But then you see where Abraham says before he sacrifices Isaac, he pulls back the knife and you know, the, his son Isaac said, you know, where's the sacrifice? And he said, well, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. Not a lamb, but himself a lamb. And yeah, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he was glad. Could be that he's making reference to that. At any rate, he says that in verse 57, the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. 50 years old? He's only 32 or so. Maybe the ministry was tough on him. I don't know. But um, you're not only 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, this is key, before Abraham was, I am. There's no he that's needed here. He is absolutely using the covenant name for God. He is claiming to be God. He is saying, I am God. And this is a very important verse in the New Testament because people say they want to make arguments back and forth about the deity of Christ. You cannot get around it here. There is no way to get around it. I mean, in, in cultic groups don't like it when you take them to this verse because you can't explain it away. Um, he, it, it's interesting. There are two tenses here. He says it, it's in past tense before Abraham came into being. And then he switches to the present tense and he says, I am. The only conclusion that you can come to about this, this verse and about this statement is that it's otherworldly. It is not something that is bound to time and not something that's bound to uh, the things as we understand them in the physical realm. Uh, it says in verse 59, they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself uh, hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. I read this and I've, it struck me. It says that they picked up stones to throw at him. And I thought, well, he's in the court of the women. And you know, the only conclusion you can draw from this it's the same scene where the woman was there in the act of adultery. And what does it say the guys did with the rocks? They dropped them. And so these guys move in. They're standing in the same place. They pick them back up. It's the same rocks. I mean, so it says they pick up stones to throw at him because they knew that he was making the assertion that I am God in the flesh. And once again... Jesus, like he does, slips right through their midst. I want to close with the fact that we, uh, we live in a, a fallen world. And I've got a, a one page I want to go through here quickly. And please, again, um, indulge me with running long today. It's important. I just want to, we have, I have 10 things here. If you could cut the lights, um, that'd be great. This is, uh, I've titled this, What Does Real Maturity Look Like? There's 10 questions here, and you don't have to write them down, but you might want to answer them in your own mind. Uh, rate how important, number one, is extremely important uh, to maturity, and number 10 is not very important. I'll go through these quickly, and then I want to talk about it as we close. Uh, number one, a careful student of the scriptures. How important is that? Zealous and active in your stand for God, number two. Number three, you have an appetite for worship, and prayer. Number four, you're consistent in worship attendance. Go to church all the time. 
Number five, practice scripture memorization. Number six, not afraid of public prayer. Number seven, active in the affairs of the local church. Number eight, ooh, here's one, fasting regularly. Number nine, has a desire to stand against blasphemy, blasphemy and ungodliness. And number 10, has a firm grasp of basic theological truth. Good things, huh? Every one of them. Let me read this. Uh, what the, the man that wrote this says, when other ministers have taken this survey, they've given high priority to everything from the importance of scripture to having public and bold faith and being, to being active in worship and ministry at the local church. To be sure, these are all important in being a disciple. But those things lift, listed have only one factor in common. Get this. They're not, they're all the traits and behaviors not of Jesus' disciples, but rather of his most vocal opponents, the Pharisees. Every one of those was something the Pharisees were dedicated to. These are all good things, but you can do all of these things and not be walking with Jesus. We see that clearly from this passage. You can do them and actually be turning away from him at the deepest levels of your life. And that's true. And I say that not to condemn or not to cause anybody to question their salvation or anything like that. But we can be doing it. We can be doing Christianity and not experiencing Christ. There's a difference. There's a difference. These are externals. These are things that people may be committed to. But where is your heart? And I, when I first saw this, when I, this got sprung on me kind of like I sprung it on you. Sorry, tricked you. But <laughs> no, seriously, it was sprung on me. And, and, and I remember kind of feeling like, yeah, well, I'm doing all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's the Pharisees. Oh, wow, that's kind of heavy. But it really kind of, it rattled me and it got me to examine, you know, what are the externals? Do the internals line up with the externals? Am I walking with him at the deepest levels of my life? Am I submitted to his lordship in my life? Do I want to hear from him? These guys were doing all of the things on that list and they were turning away from him. They were actively rejecting. Not saying that's the case with any of us. I'm just saying these are the kind of things that cause us to examine our hearts, to see if we're walking with him rightly, to see if we're current with him, if we're fresh. And, and, and to just be in a place of saying, Lord, you know, coming to his word and saying, bread of heaven, feed my soul. Let me understand your will for me today. Let me operate not from me, not from John, because John stinks. But let me operate from you. Let me be hearing from you. Let me be walking in accordance with the direction that you give me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let me interact with other people, not because of me, not with my knee jerk, but with you and your purposes for my life in loving other people and calling me to this place of love. We live in an evil planet. We live in an evil place. You don't need me to tell you that. And we don't have to be afraid of it. Uh, I had a whole list I didn't get to of things that, that are our response to the evil around us. And one of them is you don't have to be afraid. As you're walking tight with the Lord, you can just be confident as you go. So 
Father, we just thank you this morning for this brief look at the Gospel of John and, and at the evil of these guys, their father versus your father and all. And, and Lord, I pray for each of us that the takeaway would be a simple desire to walk closely with you, to be hearing from you, Lord, and, and, and to be doing that which you set before us to do, to be loving the way you love us, Lord. We know that we're all in process. We know that we all have uh, work to do, and yet we yield to the power, the working of your Holy Spirit in us and through us as we engage others in this life. So we commit this time to you. We commit ourselves to you the rest of this day and pray your will be done in us and through us. We praise you in Jesus' name. And they all said, amen.